So we will be in, in Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. If you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they, then they came to Elim, where, the, the, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. They encamped there by the water. Let's pray. God, we come to you, a God who is generous to us all of our days. And we, in our failures and our grumblings, God, even my own heart, I am a complainer. And that is sin, God. Yet you meet me with your mercy and your grace and your love, even in my grumbling. I pray, God, that this morning, by the Spirit that is at work in us and the Word that we have in front of us, we would be convicted and we would learn from Israel's failures here to remember that the God, you who have given us all things and most great is the salvation in Christ Jesus, should be met with thankfulness and gratitude and appreciation. And that, God, we should consider all the things that we would not have apart from Christ. That we would have death, hell, and punishment. But, God, in your generosity, you give us life and salvation. Thank you, God. Help us to fight against this root of bitterness and complaining and grumbling that takes hold in our hearts, God. We would fight against it, put it to death. And that the gratitude in Christ Jesus would reign supreme in our hearts. Lord, we love you. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever binge watched a show, maybe season one, and you learn that season two isn't coming out for a long time from there? Ever done that? You binge watch one and you have to wait a long time for season two? Well, that's kind of how this Exodus thing is. So uh, we made it, Exodus 1 through 15, and saw all the things that God did for Israel, the signs and the wonders, how he rescued them out of Egypt, and then we took a long pause uh, for Advent and for an emphasis on our, uh, on our mission statement. And so now we're back in Exodus, and we'll be here for a while. And so this is how it feels, is that now we need kind of a recap. You know, you, you finish season one, and then you get to season two, and you're like, what, ha- what even happened? It's been so long, I don't even remember season one anymore. So here's the recap, if you weren't here, Exodus 1 through 15. Uh, Israel was in Egypt in bondage and slavery under bitter, harsh slavery to the Egyptians, God hears their cries. He comes and intervenes through his, uh, his leader, Moses, that he has selected. Uh, Moses brings these signs and wonders to try and convince Pharaoh and the Egyptians to stop what they're doing and to let Israel go. They don't listen. They continue to harden their hearts. And therefore, they meet the judgment that God promised that would happen. And then Israel walks out through the Red Sea, and the waters come down on the Egyptians. And then they sing this song in Exodus 15, praising God for his salvation. 
So that's where we come to now. So what is this journey going to look like after they've received this great salvation? And what we're going to learn here in the beginning of their journeys into the wilderness is that what they're going to be called on is that they're going to be called to trust God, to be grateful for what He has done and to obey what He has said. And this is the main point of today's sermon. God requires trust, gratefulness, obedience from His people because He is worthy of all three. Trust, gratefulness, and obedience. And so we'll walk through verses 22 through 27 like this. The first point is this is that Israel is met with problem and a provision. A problem and a provision. Have you ever gone on a vacation, you've embarked on it, and just 10 minutes down the road, something happens? Maybe it's, hey dad, i got to use the bathroom. Ever had that one? Or maybe 10 minutes into it, you get a flat tire, or you get pulled over, and you weren't speeding, clearly. I know nobody would do that in here. But that thing happens like 10 minutes into the journey, and you start to think, is this what the rest of the trip is going to be like? Like, is this setting the tone for the rest of the trip? Are these in, in kind of some indicators, early omens that, hey, this is, this is not going to be like the planned vacation that we all expected, right? You kind of start to wonder, like, should we turn around now? Like, we're not even out of Baton Rouge. Should we just go ahead and cancel family vacation right now? Right. Well, this is what it feels like for Israel right now is that they're at the beginning of their expedition into the wilderness, going to the promised land that's been, that's been uh, told to them. And right now, as they start in verse 22, it doesn't look very promising as they go, right? And so just think about this. Exodus 15, Israel is partying. Like it's a party, right? They got tam- they're tambourining and, and tambourine, I don't know if that's a word, but they got tambourines, and they're singing, and they're, they're shouting, and they're, they're like, praise the Lord for what he has done. He, is, he has closed the waters down on our enemies. Look at what he has done. They're singing, and they're praising, and they're bringing out their tambourines, but then, look at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Okay, three days in, and the wheels have fallen off, right? Oh, no. They don't have any water. So it feels like, man, is this an omen? Is this an indicator of what the rest of this journey is going to be like with the Lord? Not only that, listen to this. So they go to a place, there's, there's no water, and then they continue traveling, and they find a place that has water, right? Well, what, what can't they do? They can't drink it, right? So they, they have no water in verse 22. They come to a place that now has water, and they can't drink it. It's like insult on top of injury, right? And they come to this place called Marah. And what's interesting is that Marah is the Hebrew word for bitter. That's, that's why it's called Marah. It's got bitter water there that they can't drink, and so it's named Marah. It's, it, the name fits the place, right? Uh, I, I read a story this past week of uh, a lottery winner in 2015 bought the winning lottery ticket in Luck, Wisconsin. That's a fitting place to buy a lottery ticket, right? Luck, Wisconsin. And now here we find a place that they've come to that has bitter water, and so it's, it seems pretty fitting that the place is named Marah, bitter, right? And Israel probably doesn't think at this time that their journey looks any better than what they came out of. They've come to the place with no water, then they've come to a place with water that they can't drink because it's so bitter. And so bitterness seems to have followed them. 
if you recall in Exodus chapter 1, verse 14, the reason that their situation is so bad is because it's harsh slavery in bitterness. They, the Egyptians have made their lives bitter. And now they've come to a place with bitter water. So they're like, our situation has not improved here, Lord. We've come from a place of bitterness only to find another place of bitterness. And so the question that we come to even when reading this text, and probably, probably even Israelites think this, is they have no water. This is their problem. They can't drink any water. Can God provide water? And the answer is what? Yes. Can God provide water? Well, just think about what God's done so far. If you remember in Genesis 21, Hagar and Ishmael are in the wilderness and they don't have any water. And guess what? God hears their cries and what does he do? He provides water. Think about even this, is that God saves Moses through water, right? She makes a basket and puts it on the water and sends him down. Think about this, is that God uses Moses' staff to turn the Egyptians' source of water into blood, right? Think about this, is that God uses water to destroy and bring judgment on the Egyptians by parting in it and then bringing it down. So the, the question at the end of this is this, can God provide water? Well, it seems by all indications through the Bible story is that he is completely control, in control over water. It's not too hard of a task for him. Is anything too hard for God? So can God provide Israel with water? Yes. And so the question for us, Christian, and for Israel is this. The question is not, can God provide? But will you trust that he has proven himself able, willing to provide when we do have need? That's the question for Israel, and that's the question for you when we come to a circumstance or a problematic situation, is that will you trust that God is able and faithful to provide because he has shown himself through the course of human history that he is completely in control of water. So this is the logic Israel should have, should have worked itself through. Hey, we're in a situation where we don't have any water. I wonder if God can provide water. Well, he did it for Ishmael and Hagar. He, he saved Moses' water. He turned water into blood. He destroyed our enemies through water, I think he can provide us with water. And that's for us, Christian. Are you going to work through these steps of reminding yourself of God's faithfulness through history when you come to a problem and say, can God provide? And that's not, that's not the question. Is it, will you trust God in that moment? Will you trust him and say, he's proven himself before. He's been faithful in the past. I I know that he will continue to remain faithful to me in the future. So how will Israel respond now that they have no water? What will be their response? Well, this is point number two. Israel's response and God's response. How will Israel respond to their situation of having no water? I, uh, I, I'm excited about the Super Bowl in one sense. There's sometimes really good commercials, right? Even when there's two really bad teams. Uh, and one of my favorites that came out many years ago is the Snickers commercial. Anybody remember that? Where um, you're, 
you're not you when you're hungry. Remember that? So guys are playing football out there, and one of the guys is Betty White. And he's complaining like, God, man, you've been on my case all day. It's all these different people, and they're either hostile or they're whining or they're angry at something like that. And they're all like, dude, eat a Snickers. You're not, you're not you when you're hungry. And so they eat a Snickers, and they turn back into themselves. And so hunger drives them. That's what the message of the commercial is. Hunger drives these people to be whiny, to be hostile, to be angry, and things like that. Well, thirst can also do something like that to us as well. And we see here that, that Israel's thirst, their need for water, it actually leads them and drives them to forget, to distrust, to grumble, and to sin against the God who saved them. Look at this, verse 24. So they've come to a place with no water, and then they've come to a place where they have bitter water. And then it says, verse 24, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we going to drink, Moses? What are we going to drink? Right? Do you see the drastic change that has happened here? People who are praising the Lord for the salvation, thanking God, gratitude, and then quickly, with no water, they jump to grumbling real quickly, right? They jump to it. comes really quick. Just a reminder how the human heart is so fickle and forgetful that this movement happens really quick, gratitude to grumbling, and that Israel can be so easily swayed by their current circumstances where they forget what God has done. And it just reminds me of how even myself, when I think about on, on Christmas when I was a kid, I'd open up a present, be like really excited about it for five seconds, throw it to the side, like, where's the next one? Where's the next one? Where's the next one? Where's the next one? And then when it gets to the end, there's no more presents, you're like, oh, that's it no more I really was hoping for you know a couple more how quickly a kid us can go from excitement and thankfulness yay to oh man disappointment and this is Israel's response yay thank you God God you brought us out here where we don't have any water have you planned this trip what? Douglas Stewart says it really well here the people did not have what they had expected and failed to trust God to provide it. Since the Garden of Eden, that has been a formula for disobedience. So the bitter water that they have here at Marah, it's pretty, it's pretty representative of the people. The bitter water represents the bitter people in heart. But this is their grumbling. And so what is grumbling? Grumbling is not just about not being happy with what you do or don't have that's being discontent but it also grumbling also indicates that you don't believe God can provide your needs and that's distrust so grumbling has two facets to itself you can be discontent I'm not happy with what I have and what God has given me or you can distrust and say God actually can't give me what I need in this moment and both those are grumbling both of them and so grumbling will be a significant feature in the next couple of chapters. This week, next week, next week. Guess the word that you're going to hear over and over again. Grumbling, grumbling, murmuring, complaining, all those things. And it will also be a significant feature even in the New Testament. Because as the Bible will tell us, grumbling, complaining, is not a respectable sin in God's eyes. Someone, oh, everybody does it. 
It's not a respectable sin in God's eyes. It's ingratitude. It's sin. And it's rebellion against God. That's what our complaining is. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.10, don't grumble as some of them did in the wilderness and were destroyed by the destroyer. Jim read off Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling. Jesus told his disciples in John 6.43, do not grumble among yourselves. Grumbling is a significant issue and it's a sin. And so I just want to ask you, church, do you find yourself in a constant state, state of dissatisfaction of discontent, of unhappiness, which shows itself in complaining, in grumbling, in harshly criticizing everything, in nitpicking everything to death. Because you're not happy, and you're not content. Are you constantly thinking about what you don't have? About what you can't do? or about what you don't like, right? Is your heart satisfied and thankful for who God is and what He has done? And I would just say this, grumbling is dangerous, not just for you, but even for the people around you. Because what we're going to see in the next couple of chapters, grumbling does not stay with one person. Grumbling is infectious, and it actually spreads to the whole community of Israel, where it's always said, Israel grumbled, the people grumbled. And so, if you think that your grumbling is safe because you're doing it, don't worry. It will spread like wildfire in your home, in your workplace, and even in the church. So, be warned. If you think your grumbling is safe because it only stays with you, it will infect your home, it will infect your house, and it will infect your church and your entire life. Dissatisfaction with who God is and what He has done will not stay within you. And so if you want to spoil your home and make your kids discontent with everything and dissatisfied with everything and complainers, you continue complaining. If you want your workplace and the people around you to know you and to also be complainers, continue to be discontent and dissatisfied with everything. If you want your church to be dissatisfied, to be discontent with everything, then you keep being that way. This sin is infectious and spreads. And so what I would say is fight grumbling with gratitude. Fight grumbling with gratitude. Gratitude for God. For all that he's done. For who he is. This is what Paul warns us and tells us, encourages us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. So that means your circumstance does not dictate your attitude. Your circumstances do not change whether you're grateful or not. God, God, he dictates those things. But if you swap it around, guess who your God is? Your God is your circumstances, your scenarios, your life situations. Those things do not dictate who we are in Christ Jesus. And the prevailing theme of the Bible is what we see in the Psalms. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His what? Steadfast love endures forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got to kill this sin. We've got to kill the root of it. 
because it will spread to our homes, families, church, workplaces, nations, where we have to be known as the people who are constantly grateful for what God has done in Christ Jesus for us. So how does God respond to Israel's grumbling? How does he respond? If there was ever a time for God to say, are you kidding me? If there was ever a time for the Bible to have that verse, are you kidding me? Seriously? You ever said that to your kids or somebody else? Really? Really? You'd expect God to say it right here. Dude, did you see chapters 1 through 15? Did you, did you read those? Did you read everything that I did for you? Did you see that? I, yeah, you saw that. I know you saw that. And you get three days? You make it three days? And you don't have some water? Are you, and you start complaining and grumbling and being ungrateful? Are you kidding me? This would have been a great time for God to say, are you kidding me? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Moses cries out to the Lord and the Lord answers, which has been the pattern of God in Scripture so far. In Exodus 2, 23 through 25, Israel is crying out to the Lord in their harsh slavery. And what does it say? God hears and he listens and he knows. He doesn't turn his ear away. And here he does the same thing. And he provides for his people. He provides in a supernatural way. Just as God used Moses' staff to turn, turn water into blood, now he, he shows Moses a log to throw into the water to make it sweet so that they can drink it. A supernatural act done by God. And this will be the course of his, of his work with his people where he supernaturally provides for his people. If you remember that he fed Elijah when he was in the wilderness where he had ravens bring him food. If you remember even in Jesus' own ministry, Jesus miraculously multiply, multiplies loaves of bread and fish to feed multitudes. This is God's response to rebellion and their grumbling. And then this is just amazing. God's response to Israel's distrust and rebellion and sin is not as they deserve. It's not as they deserve. God's response is typically never as we deserve, right? What we deserve for our grumbling and complaining and discontent and murmuring and distrust and sin is not provision. It's punishment. If you think about that, our what we deserve when we're discontent and we distrust and we grumble is not provision from the Lord. It's punishment. That's what sin deserves. But God, as Paul says, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, does not give Israel nor us what we deserve. And that is the goodness of the gospel, isn't that, is it not? The gospel news is this. We don't get what we deserve because of Christ Jesus. In Him, we, we get so many things, the richness, the riches of Christ. But it's nothing we deserve for our sin and our grumbling. And so I would just, I would just challenge us all with this. I'm, I've been convicted this morning. I, I found myself complaining this past week, like all the problems, and then the Lord just said, man, don't, don't you think you're the problem, Lord? You're the grumbler? You're the complainer? Yeah, I am. And so when you catch yourself grumbling or discontent, 
I challenge you, repent of it. Repent and turn away and remember to thank God for giving you provision and not punishment in that moment. Because in that moment of grumbling, in that moment of complaining, God would have been completely just and righteous and good to strike you down and punish you because of your grumbling. But in that moment, when you repent of your grumbling, thank God, God, thank you for not giving me what I deserve in that moment when I grumbled, when I complained. Thank you, God. This is who God is. He provides. He gives provision to those people when they don't deserve it. But God's provision comes with a promise. It comes with a promise. This is number three. God's promise and provision. Have you ever heard someone say, kind of, you were oblivious to the, the fact, but it was a test, and you passed with flying colors. Great job. And you're like, I didn't even know it was a test. I just, I just showed up and started doing this. It was a test, and you did a great job. Good job. Right? You may have had that experience. Well, here in 15, 22 through 27, it's kind of the opposite. The scriptures appear to say, Israel, it was a test, and you failed miserably. You failed miserably. All right. Look at 1525. Is that the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them. This is, this is the test. How are they going to respond when they don't have water? And we remind ourselves of this. The Lord does not tempt us to sin. But he does test the faithfulness of his people, as James 1.13 tells us. He does test us. And the last time, what's interesting, the last time we hear the word test, if you remember your Bible, kind of Bible knowledge, the last time you hear the word test is in Genesis 22, when the Lord tests Abraham. Remember? Is that he tests him to bring a sa- his, offer his son as a sacrifice, Isaac. And Abraham is commended for his faith. Is that he trusts the Lord in that moment. But here in Exodus 15, Israel is the antithesis to faith and trust. So if you want a kind of an application point from this, mimic Abraham's faith and trusting the Lord and learn from Israel's failure. That's it. Because God does test his people to see are they genuinely entrusting themselves to him. And so from this failed test, he gives them a promise. He follows up this test with a promise. And it's it's this, obedience to God's word will ensure blessing for them. Because look at here. He says, if you do these things, if you listen, if you do what is right, if you give ear, if you keep all these statutes, there's going to be blessing involved in this. There's going to be blessing. But implied in this call to obedience, this call to blessing through obedience, is that there's an implied warning in here. That disobedience will be met with cursing. If they obey, God will not inflict these diseases on them that he inflicted upon Egypt. And diseases seem here to be referring to all the plagues and signs and wonders that he showed and how he brought judgment on Egypt through those things. He says, you won't experience any of that, but they experience that because of their disobedience, unrepentance, and hardness of heart. You won't experience that. That won't be your outcome. And so you've got to have to choose two ways to live here. Are you going to live in faith, obey God's word, give ear to all these things, and experience blessing from obedience? Or are you going to be disobedient and experience cursing? 
So you can do one of the two, Israel. You can be like Abraham, who showed faith and was blessed, or you can be like Egypt and disobey and be cursed and experience judgment. One, one of two ways to live. Two ways to live and two ways to end. One of those. But he says this, you don't have to meet me and have a relationship with me like Egypt did. And this is why he ends in verse 26. For I am the Lord your God, what? Your healer. So you won't experience me like Egypt experienced me. I was the inflictor in Egypt. I inflicted on these people. But my relationship with you will be as a healer, a healer of nations. I was the inflictor of judgment on Egypt, but I will be a healer to you if you obey. This is the great physician at work, God. The great physician, and ultimately, God will be a healer to his people through his anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. And this is why we're told in Isaiah 53 that famous verse, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are what? Healed. God is the healer, and through his Messiah, Jesus Christ, he heals us. He heals us. And this is why Jesus can say in his own ministry, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. I came for the sick. The people who realize that they're unrighteous, unworthy, and sinners. They realize that. And then he says, Peter tells us this. He himself bore in his body our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the testimony of the gospel for us Christians, is that we were sick in sin, we were dead and depraved, we needed healing, and that healing could come from only one, the one who is called the healer of nations, God himself, who comes in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who bore in his body our sins, so that we could be healed. He was wounded for us, he died for us, so that we could receive healing from him. This is the healer, and for those who obey him through faith who trust in him, they can receive healing too. This morning, if you walked in here and you don't know who the Lord is, you don't know who Christ is, here's your greatest need this morning. It's not a better attitude. It's not a better life situation. It's not a bigger car, nicer home, any of those things. What you need desperately right now is healing that can only come through Christ Jesus. And your greatest sickness is not cancer. Your greatest sickness is not cold. Your greatest sickness is not a physical ailment. Your greatest sickness is sin. And you need the healer, Jesus Christ. You need him. So this is what the Lord promises them. If you, if you keep all my statutes and commandments, I will be your healer. And look what God does in the end for Israel. In the end, verse 27, he brings them to this Elam place. Man, that sounds like a, a paradise, right? There were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Man, they've come from rags to riches really quickly, right? From no water, bitter water, to 12 springs. Have all you want. It's all yours, and I brought you here, right? 
Israel receives more than they need, more than they can imagine, and certainly more than they deserve, right? And man, isn't this a small picture of the destiny of all God's people? Isn't this a small picture of that? Is that despite our complaining, despite our grumbling, despite our discontent, despite our dissatisfaction, Christ has come and died for all that. All that. And then, in eternity, He gives us more than we need, more than we can imagine, and certainly, certainly nothing we deserve apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a small picture of the Christian journey of where God is bringing His people through His work in Christ Jesus is that we are sinners who are grumblers, who complain at what we don't get or what we don't have. And God expresses mercy upon grace to us. And in the end, through Christ Jesus, He's bringing us to a paradise that's greater than 12 springs, that's greater than 70 palm trees. It's the new heavens and new earth where we will have no need, we will have no want, and we will all be standing in the new heavens and earth and saying, we don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve a single thing. And yet, but it's because of Christ Jesus. Remember this, church, as I close. Fight grumbling with gratitude in the gospel of what God has done, what He's doing now, and where He is bringing us, and what He's going to do for us in the end. God, we love you, and I just, I come and I confess I'm a grumbler and I'm a complainer, and I have not, I have not reflected and remembered the great mercy and grace that you've shown me, a sinner, depraved, wretched God that I am. But in Christ Jesus, you have made me a new creation. Thank you, God. And then on that day when we stand with you in the new heavens and new earth, all that we can say is, Thank you, God. We deserve none of it. God, by your spirit at work in us through your word, help us to fight. Fight grumbling with gratitude in God through Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things.